Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Jeff McFetridge is an iconic designer and visual artist who's worked with the likes of the Beastie Boys, Pharrell Williams, Spike Jones, and Rick Rubin, and companies ranging from Patagonia, Nike, The New York Times, Oreo, and many more. Now, Jeff is also a very passionate skateboarder and skier, and, and I assure you this feels very surreal to say out loud, he happens to be a big fan of Blister. In fact, he's actually been a Blister member for several years now, which to my great embarrassment, I only realized a few weeks ago. I have been a big fan of Jeff's work long before I knew Jeff's name or that he was a Blister member. And so, as I think you will be able to tell, I do my best in this episode to try to keep it together and control my inner fanboy. But full disclosure, I am a fanboy, and I think Jeff's work and life are both just really interesting. So Jeff and I kick things off here with the story of how we first got connected a few weeks back. And like all great stories, it involves the Wu-Tang Clan. And then we talk about how in the world Jeff went from being a sponsored skater to doing design work for some of the biggest companies, bands, musicians, and directors in the world. We also discuss skate culture versus ski culture versus snowboard culture. We talk about Jeff being a passionate but conflicted telemarker. We also decide in this episode that we need to fire up again the Blister Book Club, and there is a whole lot more. And while you listen to this episode, you should go check out some of Jeff's work at championdontstop.com. And there is also a short video that I personally really like, and we put it in the show notes to this episode on our website where you can see some of Jeff's work and hear him talk a bit more about it. I think that video is great, and I think you should check it out. But for now, let's get to a conversation that I very, very much enjoyed with Jeff McFetridge. I have to start with the way that we recently kind of got a conversation going. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One evening... You know, I, I had checked Instagram on our Blister account and there was a there was a mention, you know, we got at Blistered and it was from the account McFetridge. And first I was like, wait, no way. And then do you remember kind of the nature? Oh yeah. Okay, totally. let's let's I'll have you take over. So I rem- I <laughs> I, I mean, I recently started following a guy who's awesome, who's sort of like a, he was like a, he's sort of like a Coney Island North Face aficionado. So like is obsessed with that like mountain jacket and he's obsessed with North Face, but in like a, like in like a Staten Island Wu-Tang thug way. And he made a Pope, but he takes it super seriously. And he has like an amazing collection of North Face and I was just going through his feed and he posted something that was about something about washing the jackets properly. And I had just listened to Nick Wax, yeah. which I use. 
that was like a fascinating episode of the podcast. And, and I think super illuminating for like, you know, whether it's like streetwear guys who are wearing like three layer Gore-Tex to know like what is going into it, like what's on their body all the time, you know, like, like health wise, and then also how to take care of it. So I commented like, because he was, he was a fanatical guy. And yeah, and he posted a video that was like Wu-Tang playing over him, like washing North Face or something. And I mentioned the podcast and it's sort of like, I, I, you know, other people I know who follow him, I was like, everyone should know this, you know, like what is three layer? What does that mean? Like this stuff you're buying, you're paying so much for, and that also the environmental and like health concerns about it, about the, the DWR stuff. And so anyway, like, and so, and then I added you just like randomly, like I have no idea if you would see it or not. (laughs) And then you did. And you immediately were like, what's up? Yeah. And I was so confused. I was like, cause like cash rules, everything around me is like playing to this, like, this is how you care for your three layer jacket. And I was like, is this serious or is this a joke? Like what's happening right now? And why is Jeff, how does Jeff even know who we are? That's kind of where it started. And then I think I just did a like, thanks so much for the shout out. I think you then just responded with (laughs) at blister more woo, (laughs) (laughs) which I just couldn't argue with at all. And then, um, then I think from there, I mentioned the anecdote that actually turns out, I don't think I've ever told this story. I was actually supposed to have Riza on the blister podcast and just before it happened, there was like there was a change in the schedule, and it hasn't happened. And of course, that was devastating to me. But I think I just told you, like, if that podcast had actually gone down, it would have just been a drop the mic moment, and I would have oh, just yeah. quit, quit blister and just wandered off into the wilderness forever. I think is the last was. blister pod. It would have been like the high, but it would have been disappointing because it would have been the last the blister last podcast. One. Yeah, yeah. Under what context was Riza gonna just? Yeah, he's a listener. He's another fan. Well, I, I, you know, I'd love to be able to say that. I think he was involved with, um, or had like an ownership stake in a a new stereo company or like headphones company or something oh, like that. And so they reached okay. out, and ah. you know. I was like, 100% we should have a conversation about headphones or anything he wants to talk about. Um, <laughs> Woo wear is definitely not waterproof. No. Don't get caught in the rain in Woo wear for no. sure. I doubt it was Woo wear. I love, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm a listener and like I've, I've been a fan for a long time, but I've sold you guys. Like, I, like that's, I think the context isn't, you know, I wasn't joking. Like I was sort of serious. Like I sell... I tell people about Blister because I think that there's something essentially, it's like you make content about design. Like I think of Blister as being like, oh, this is about design. It's about usability, functionality, and then skiing, which I love. And I have a lot of interaction with people who like not just care about gear, but like design stuff. And like, I feel like the way we met and then, like, maybe people I work for, it's, there's this, like, broad span of interest. Hmm. Maybe it doesn't reach all the way to RZA, but maybe it does. <laughs> maybe it maybe does. RZA's somewhere on that continuum. 
So this is just, I mean, we've had some nice conversations now, but here we are on air. And, and I was like, you know, you have been involved in so many different interesting pursuits and arenas and mediums. I'm really going to try to do my best to touch on a number of these different things. And um, I'm just going to try a little bit <laughs> okay. here. But uh, there are going to be a number of people, I assume, who think of you maybe first and foremost as like, quote unquote, a fine artist, mm-hmm. you know, who's like, yeah, of course, McFedridge, like an important artist whose work hangs in art galleries. And he's really good at talking in a deep and rich way about the work and and the like. And then there's just this really incredible history of commercial graphic design work and then there's being an art director for the Beastie Boys zine. You have hinted a little bit. You've already said you're a passionate skier. You've hinted at the fact that you are, I'm going to call you sort of an occasional telemarker or conflicted telemarker, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. But I'm going to back us up, though, before we get there. And I want to talk a little bit about growing up and which came first for you, an interest in art or an interest in skating? Well, I mean, I, I mean, art in like a way that like every, like kids are just into art. Like I drew all that, like from my memory, like my number one form of play was drawing. So like, I didn't know that you could like draw as like a career. So um, it really, like, I think that skateboarding, like, comes up a lot like in my sort of biographical like understanding of myself because skateboarding opened up this idea that like you could draw and it's like uh it becomes part of you know like you like drawing is like sort of a vital part of culture you know in like of cultures like skateboarding you know so like i was like the kid in school who drew and i was uh yeah i was just you know i i wasn't um like I tell my kids now, like I wasn't like the best. I just liked doing it the most because to me, drawing was like play, you know, drawing was um, like, it was just fun. It was a way, yeah, it was just, it was, it was doodly. It wasn't like, I wasn't like a virtuosic um, art kid. Um, but yeah, then through skateboarding, it's like skateboarding sort of needs, like skateboarding needs visuals, you know, it's a very visual culture. So through, like I started skateboarding, like like I don't know when I was like 12 or something like that and like started drawing on skateboards and drawing on my friend's skateboards and um and then like got sponsored by a shop and started doing t-shirts for the shop and you know it started started to sort of become like you sort of like fade into it becoming like basically exactly what I'm doing now (laughs) and when you say you were sponsored by a shop because of your art or because you were a pretty good skater? Oh, from skateboarding, yeah. Which is actually, at some point, Ken Achenbach's name came up in the blister context. Like there was, a, there was um, it was like, a, it was a pro, a pro skier who had gone to the Camp of Champions, which was started by Ken Achenbach, who was like an early protagonist in like the beginning, like the dawn of snowboarding. And he had a shop called the Snowboard Shop in Calgary, Alberta, where I lived. And in the summer, it was a skateboard shop. So I hung out at the shop. I was like shop kid kind of, and then was good enough to become sponsored. 
And so I started skating for their, like just the local, we would do demos and, you know, it was eighties, eighties skateboarding. Um, and, uh, and then, but then I would do the posters for the demos. I would do the, I started doing like, yeah, I would be in the contest, but I would do like the poster for the contest as well. And started doing a zine and Ken would sell the zine in the shop and, um, you know, with a group of friends and, uh, yeah, so it's sort of, and then through that, like, then Ken's like, oh, I'm doing a, I'm doing a line of a t-shirt line. So I did the t-shirts for the, I did this t-shirt line for him as a kid and then, and shop tees and, but it was really, you know, it's like really major, you know, like for what Ken, like, he's like one of those characters who's just like opportunity guy. And so like for a lot of people, I feel like Ken Ockenbach, who's now, so, and then he went on to start Camp of Champions in Whist- in Whistler, but at the time he had, he started like the first sort of skate, the first snowboard shop in maybe it was maybe the first snowboard shop in the world. So then from there, like I really got my start, like, so like that was sort of happening and I would do stuff for bands locally. And, um, but then I, my friend, John Boyer, who became like, we started, we skated together and then we started snowboarding together, but he went pro because you could basically like, like, I mean, he was really good, but you could go pro, like they needed pros. So he went pro for barfoot snowboards, um, which was Chuck Barfoot um, based in California. He started a snowboard company. And so, and I used to just draw on his skateboards, John Boyer, I'm sort of being confusing, but he became pro. And so like I did his first pro model. And so it's sort of like, like snowboarding or snowboarding was actually like a big part of like me sort of becoming like a professional like a graphic designer before I even really knew what being a graphic designer was. And how uncommon was that at the time? I mean, you're how old when you start designs for Ken's t-shirt line? I was like, yeah, I was definitely like 14, 16, you know, like maybe like, yeah, like not drive, like maybe just driving, like, you know, like definitely like a kid. And then I remember when I did, like I was in college, like I was in my first year, of, I went to a local art school, the Alberta College of Art in Calgary. And I was in school and I did that line of snowboards. And like one of my professors sort of helped me and like to to create like print ready files. And um, the first one I did was like, a, was like draw ink, like the life size of a snowboard, you know, but an ink drawing. And then I spec'd all the separations with overlays like by hand. Um, so it's like, it's like I was doing like design in a way like you would do design like a hundred years ago, right? Like the, to- the it, was, it was the technology of the 1950s were still sort of relevant in like 1990 or 1987 or whatever. Um, but then the next year, like, so I did the one board for John and then they didn't, they said, they just asked John like, can your friend do all our boards? So for the next season, I did their entire line of snowboards. So it was like five, four or five boards, including his pro model. Um, and th- for that, I was like, oh my God, there's so many boards. So I did it digitally. <laughs> and it was like the dawn of the computer. And um, we had computers in the school, they just arrived. And I created these files that were so huge. And like, it was actually the first, they were the first digital like snowboards ever printed. Like I sent them to the press and in press ready form and I had an instructor help me sort of like work out like what the resolution would be and all this sort of technical stuff. And when they received them, they were like, we've never received art digitally before. 
because <laughs> it was all brand new, you know. You're 14, 15, 16 when you start in this work. And then I think when you're doing, when you're talking about these digital images. Yeah, now I'm like 18, 19. Yeah. So yeah. at the time, are you like, this is insane? Like I'm getting to put my images on these skateboards and snowboards or were you like no no this is a thing that happens in the world no it was yeah it was insane and it was insane but i was also following something that i think is like really distinct like i like it was insane like i couldn't believe i was getting to make it but i also had this drive to do it like i sort of knew like it really helped to be sort of isolated and like not knowing any artists or I didn't know any designers or, you know, I was in school for, for like commercial art, you know, like the school was like commercial art, but like, I didn't recognize anything. Like there was nothing in that entire building that I was like, Oh, that person's doing what I do that. Oh, they're talking about stuff I want to do. Like I, but I knew in my head, like I wanted to make, like I wanted to make stuff that like was in the world, you know, like I wanted to participate in like culture. And um, so in that way, it was like, it was like really, like I sort of hit, it, it hit the note. Like I, I was aim, I, I was aiming for it, like making zine. Like I think everyone who's made a zine, it's like you're making something for your friends primarily, you know? Like you're not making it like to get a better, a job or to get, you know, you're just like making something for your world. So it felt like, oh, I'm making snowboards. I'm it's like a zine, but it's like a larger scale. And I think that that, that is like, you know, I didn't, I didn't have aspirations to like just, be an artist. Like I didn't go like, oh, I'm gonna make art and I'm gonna like sell art in like a gallery, right? Like for me, it was like, I'm gonna fill my world with stuff like I made, you know? And my world's full of people I know and I know how to speak to them. And um, and so I think it, it was sort of, for me, it was like, a, I think I was like in, in many ways, like I was like precocious, I guess, but I was also, I wasn't mature, you know? <laughs> like I was like still like a kid and had, um, you know, I, I was I was only I was only able to take on like a certain like I could only handle so much like and so like that world that sort of small world of snowboarding or skateboarding was like sort of like really all that I could I could really handle. So you go from your art program and then make this jump to Grand Royal. What what do you feel like is like ah well there's actually this important mark between you know these two points. Or are you like, nope, let's get there? Well, I mean, I think like I, I think the most important thing was like I like I was working, I was making these snowboards, like I was going to ASR, the action sports retailer. Like while I was in college, I would like go for maybe it was like winter break or whenever ASR is. And I would travel to California and I would meet people. I started making some skateboards because I had made snowboards at this point, but I really wanted to make skateboards. Like skateboarding was like way more like it was sort of like the highest of my cultures, you know? Um, I mean, before Beastie Boys or something. Um, <laughs> but then I, so, and then it, I graduated from, it was like I graduated from, or I was about to graduate from my undergrad. And I realized like, okay, like I'm sort of doing this now. Like, do I want, like, is, is this it? So I decided to go to grad school. And so I was exposed to, like I bought um, iMagazine, which is this like, this like very beautiful design magazine from London. Like I'd, I'd been to New York to visit friends and I picked up this magazine and in this magazine was an article on CalArts and this sort of like really like 
rigorous um, project-based grad program in design that was about like about designers creating like like avant-garde work that was biographical and like narrative and really weird like like sort of like it was sort of like this new thing that was happening in design and it really it can be described as like really messy design like illegible type ray gun like 90s sort of design but like behind it were were these really interesting um uh people from from that came from cranbrook that were like teaching this program so that's like the big change was like i went to cal arts and like dropped everything like i was like okay i'm not just gonna like do make snowboards and skateboards (laughs) forever like i need i needed some sort of challenge that was like this sort of new challenge I don't know why I decided that. Like it was totally self-motivated and I applied and got in. And But then fast forward, like I graduated from CalArts and then went straight, like literally left like a friend who were like, I had a group of friends and we all skated at CalArts and like one of those friends worked at Girl Skateboards. So I like immediately like interviewed at Girl Skateboards <laughs> to work at Girl and sort of like that didn't pan out. But through that, I met um, Mark Lumen, who was doing Grand Royal, the Beastie Boys magazine. So I like I went to CalArts, and really at CalArts, like I learned how to think. Like I, so I had like formal, like I had form, and I knew what I wanted to do. Like I had like I wanted to make work for my, for my world, but I sort of went to CalArts to like think it through, like to create like a process that like I could bring this sort of elevated level of work to my world. Um, and it was that was really sort of planned. Like my essay to apply to CalArts was about high and low culture and about how like low, like our understanding of low culture. And it was a very basic essay, but it was like our understanding of low culture is this sort of like very complex, like sort of like these like sort of low cultures, like these laboratories for like really like interesting design and interesting work. So, so I went from there and then like then I like I'm exposed to like this like to, to work to do the BC Boys magazine as the art director. And it was sort of this big jump. And yeah. All right. I want to hear, how, how does that, how does that initial conversation go? You get a phone call? Oh, I mean, it was like the initial story was, the story was actually like I interviewed at Girl. So Girl Skateboards, which is like, um, is Andy Jenkins was the art director. So it was Andy Jenkins, Mark Lumen and Spike Jones. And it was Rick Howard um, was the professional, you know, it's like the best, it was the best skateboard company at the time. And, uh, it was, um, yeah, it was like the best. Like, so I was like going to interview at like the best place and then I got the job and then I quit this sort of, I had a job that where I was just like, once I graduated from school, I was just saving money. So I got this sort of small job at a small design firm and I quit that job. And then like the day before I was, I was like cleaning my desk and I was, about to go like the next day I was supposed to show up at girl as like for my job and Andy calls me and says like Rick can't we can't hire you like we don't want to like they just I didn't have the job anymore because they they decided they couldn't grow and like they were nervous but he said but you can talk to my friend Lou who's doing this new the he's running the BC Boys magazine Grand Royal which like I knew like they had come out with with two issues already and it's it was like the best magazine I'd ever seen it was unbelievable and so he came like I went home and he came to my house like that night is my memory and just showed up and is like all right you're the new art director like that was it like um 
So very like highs and lows. What year is this? 95, 96. Um, it was a good, like we made a magazine, but it really, it was like, like the first issue we made, it took us a year to make. <laughs> like it wasn't like a magazine. It was like, I mean, it was just a crazy project. It was just, it's indescribable, like what it was like. Um, and it was really like Mike D, Mark Lumen, and then all their friends would like contribute. And like, it wasn't like a job, like I moved houses, but we had a tiny room where basically me and the editors, like if we leaned back our desk, our chairs would bang into each other. And we just worked like 20 hours a day for a year on one issue, you know? Like it sounds insane. It, I mean, it was, it was totally insane, you know? Huh. And like living on nothing. And... I have to suspect though, at this time, I mean, I, I just like, I mean, the Beasties were the biggest thing in the world. Yeah, they like, really culturally, were. Culturally, yeah. like literally number one. In a way that I think I didn't even have any, like, I mean, they were my like number one. Like I understood that, but like, it's like in retrospect, it was like, oh wow, they really were the biggest, like, yeah, they were the biggest band in the world. In a, in a way, like there wasn't other, yeah, it wasn't like there was a bunch of BC boys and like they were the most successful one. It was like, that was it, you know? Yeah, it was huge. I remember hearing Chuck D, right, of Public Enemy, where I'd be tempted to be like, yeah, you know, another of the biggest groups on earth for a period of time. I remember listening to Chuck D talk about, he's like, we owe our whole start to the Beastie Boys. Yeah. And yeah. I, it, that floored me. I, I didn't, I didn't know that part of the story. And so I, I have that same kind of sense as you. It's like even, decades later i'm still learning about the people that they were identifying and tapping and saying come open for us and get on you know be on stage let's share this stage i think it's really hard to overstate the colossal ripples coming from that particular group no and i mean i like this year like i did a, i've been i'm doing projects with rick rubin and uh, like I'm doing like um, branding stuff for him and like working with him. He, there was like a movie made on him. And so I did like titles. And at the same time I was working with Ruben, I was working on the BC boys, like the remaining guys, like, and Spike Jones made a, they did a, like a Broadway show based on their story. So like, I like was like suddenly like steeped in this world. Like I'm like on YouTube watching Rick Rubin stuff, but I'm also like digging into Beastie Boy stuff where it was like, theoretically, like I was there, you know? And like, I'm watching it like, oh my God. Like, I remember, like I remember all like the time, you know? And I didn't see tons of shows or anything, but like I was around during like the sort of the peak of, of what they were doing. But in retrospect, it's like, it's really crazy. You know, like <laughs> they were really cool. Um, I wasn't, you know, I was just like, you know, like it's like they were like just like a, I don't know. I mean, like I still like my studio now is in Atwater, which is like in Los Angeles. I guess we should tell people that yeah, I'm in Los Angeles. You're in but Los Angeles. I'm yeah. in Los Angeles on Glendale Boulevard um, in Atwater Village, which like is mentioned in their songs, and like it's like I moved studios once. Like I used to have a studio up the street, which was. I got because it was directly across the street from G Sun Studios where they recorded everything and where they had an office for the magazine. But like at the time, like I was like, I'm not going to be in this office. Like, I'm like, I'm not going to be in here. Like, I don't want to hang out. <laughs> like I didn't actually like the sort of like whatever that energy, like, like it was intense. Like they, they were rock stars. So like 
their office had that sort of energy. And I was like legitimately like, I want to make a magazine, you know, like that was like, I was like doing my thing to some degree. Like I was like interested in like, like I didn't want to be like backstage with the Beastie Boys. I was like, I want to make a magazine, like almost to a fault. Like I took it sort of really seriously. And, um, and it was like the start of me, like sort of like doing like my thing. So, but, uh, yeah, but it's like that history. Like I still am like, so in some ways, like I'm in this, my studio now, like down the street, but it's like, like, I'm still like connected in sort of a strange way. Like it's the same neighborhood. Like I just stayed here. (laughs) It's sort of crazy. Now, you mentioned Spike Jones at Girl. Yes. You kept a relationship going with Spike to some degree, at least, I can say. Talk to me a bit about that, because I'd love to get a better understanding of like the runway up to your involvement with the movie Her. Yeah. Like, I mean, I... I, I barely had like a spike at the time of like when I was doing Grand Royal or I was working with Girl because I continued to do graphics for Girl and be involved in skateboarding sort of like through Girl. And um, so I was doing like Girl Skateboard stuff. I was doing Beastie Boys stuff. Like this sounds like all very like cool guy stuff. But like I was doing that work in the 90s. And then I was also well, who I was actually working with, with his what was with Sofia Coppola, his wife at the time. So I was doing her clothing line, which was called Milk Fed, which was like a, like a sort of a offshoot of like X Girl. So I was doing all her graphics, and then I did um, the titles and the marketing for her first film, Virgin Suicides. And then it was almost like then, like I started working with Spike around that time when he started. He was like working on a feature, but it was like not happening. Um, it was he was going to make his first film was going to be James and the Giant Peach which is sort of amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, and I started working with him when he was doing, he started like he was doing music videos and commercials. I've sort of been involved with him since that time. Like I've worked on every film and um, yeah. And then her was like, so his last was definitely like, it was sort of like, as I've worked with Spike over the years, it's like more and more, I get more, like more of what I do get seen. Like the first stuff I ever did for him was like, the crew jackets like so the crew gets jackets and i'd like design the jackets for like a month and then it'd be like no one would see it but i was just like (laughs) down to do it you know um and then her is like yeah i designed all the like the visual interfaces and sort of like the character of samantha in her like like all the i guess all the screens and so samantha is like a like a user interface like a an artificial intelligence user interface that like I designed that whole interface and basically like a lot of like, yeah, sort of like visualizing the, like the near future, how the near future screens look in that film. You know, when people ask me like about favorite movies, I never say her because I feel like you're, you're kind of like a weirdo. If you say her, (laughs) just say like Blade Runner. Yeah. But it's like, ask me what I think are the most important movies even of like the last 20 years and i'm putting her damn near the top yeah so many people when that when that film came out at least in some of the things i was reading and some of the conversations i was having it was like yeah whatever like this this movie about this loser guy yeah and and i was like yo this is not a loser this is an everyman this is 
all of us. And the only question is how far away are we from this being all of us? And, and I think if people either haven't seen the film or haven't seen it in a while, you go watch it right now. And then you go back to trying to say, this guy's just some weird outlier loser. Or like, this is just modern life now. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's really great to make stuff that goes out in the world because like you can feel like like things like it's like sonar like you make things you put them out in the world but like you get energy gets like bounced back from them um even without social media or like comments or anything like you can just like over the years of making stuff like you can tell when stuff bounces back bounces back and her is like being involved in her was like I, you know, it was like a project and it was amazing and it was like super, super challenging. And like watching them make the film was insane and like being involved in it was insane, like a year's project. And, um, but then it's like this slow rebound, like as time goes on, it becomes more relevant. And I'm seeing now, like, there's this sort of like, you just get these waves of sort of like response or like people commenting to me. Like it's it's like as times change, like it, it's sort of the importance of that film. I think is changing, and um, yeah, and there's nothing there's nothing like it, you know. And that was so much about like the work, like we did in it was was sort of about like creating something that that didn't have like a paradigm, you know. It was, and that's very Spike, you know. He's invent he's truly inventive. Yeah, he's not referencing stuff in in the film. So I'm curious. You already you already said you know you're not that great with specific dates. Uh, so I want to respect that. But her comes out at the very end of 2013. So I presume you'd been working on that film, what, a, a, a at least a year or two advance of that release? Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is something I'm always interested in. Like, we just jumped from talking basically about Grand Royal... And then we kind of jump to her. And I always think it's interesting, right? Like there are certain things that it's like, in this case, I, the interviewer, are, are bringing up these specific elements. We just, we just passed up, you know, a decade <laughs> right. worth of work. And it's always interesting to me to then maybe put the question back to you. Like, let's say, you know, between this lot of years, Grand Royal and her what are some of the projects or specific pieces of art or shows or whatever that you worked on where you're like, yeah, you know, maybe these don't get talked about all the time by other people, but to me personally, man, these were important or um, kind of decisive or something like that. Right. But like, that's like, I mean, I think that's interesting. Like, I agree. I think like what's fascinating, like for me, like I don't look... Like, it's like I see, like, a steady just stream of stuff. Like, my whole goal, like, basically, like, if you go from the time of Grand Royal, like, I made Grand Royal, like, I'm going to be super brief here, but, like, like I basically did Grand Royal and realized, like, okay, I shouldn't do that. Like, it taught me, like, okay, this is not what I want to do, which is, like, like, make something, like, design something it, like a magazine. So like I thought like well, the response was like well what do you want to do 
And it was like a time of like, okay, I've got to stop like challenging myself, like taking on stuff that's super hard. Like I tried to make Grand Royal as hard as possible, you know? And so I was like, okay, now I'll make stuff that I feel like I want to make, which was like, I wanted to do animation. I wanted to have art shows and I wanted to do like graphics and like, like projects, like design projects. So like they, basically like those 10 years were like that. But like what I was trying to do was like connect everything. Like it was like sort of like an overall project of like doing projects that were like completely connected to each other. So like if I was doing, like I, my first show was like posters that were um, like these very graphic like prints. And so like when I got, so then I got a project at the same time. So like I proposed for the project one of the pieces from the show for the project and they were like sure so like I was sort of like that was like the start of like just do that's what I was gonna do like I was gonna everything was gonna connect and lead to the next thing rather than this sort of like in the world of like design there was this there's this sort of like oh you make 10 things and you use one of them you know and so then you have like these nine things that are like oh I just did those to like sell the one thing or you know it's this sort of that's like a sort of a class, like at the time that was like a graphic design, like that's what you did. And I just didn't, wasn't interested. So I was like, like I'm always, I'm trying to like make everything like, like tighten up the sort of connections between things so that like, it's like one body of work. So like, if you do a project, like what you learn from that project leads to the next thing. And then from then project, you can sort of continue a thought through all these projects, you know? And then stuff like, you know, from her, like, it's like you take on, like, that's like unusual, like her, because it was this huge challenge. Like I knew nothing about interface design. You know, it was about like creating like near, like near futurist. Like I didn't do any research. I didn't like read a book on futurists or study, like, you know, like, like find people who were actually like, um, studied in the field like i just decide like i'm gonna just invent this um if i'm talking about like connect like projects leading to each other like that's like like sort of like her was like sort of like jumping off a cliff but then from her like now i feel like i'm creating all this work that really began with her like i'm creating work that like kind of began with like a type of thinking thinking about ai and thinking about like those types of ideas that um like now it sort of like resonates like um, like years, years and years later. But yeah, so for in that period of time, like, yeah, I did, I had shows and made stuff and I could name like a ton of projects, but it's sort of like, I think the most interesting thing about like the way it, about my work is really like the way I sort of connect the things and that it is like a, yeah, it's like a way, a way of working that was that like was sort of new. Like I think in a lot of ways I sort of invented my own like way to like have a studio, which is just me. Like I also never grew the studio. Like I never hired people or like, you know what I mean? Like I never like expanded. It was just like, no, it's just me. Like it's sort of limited. Like, so there's only so much I can do. So it's gotta be very precise. And it want, it had to be exactly what I wanted to do because I didn't, I wasn't gonna like delegate any of it. I had to do it all. So it's this very, yeah, so I could be sort of like selfish and like follow my interests and like change really quickly. So if I was working on like an animation project, I could like completely change to like the next day I could just be doing, working on like some fine art projects, 
you know, because there was no, I didn't have to, you know, there was no like resetting the machinery. Huh. Yeah. Now, when you talk about your studio, this is, we're talking about Champion Studio. Yes. So you start Champion actually as early as the mid 90s? Yeah. Okay. And so if anybody goes to the URL Champion Don't Stop, look up the list of clients, <laughs> um, which is insane, right? Um, let me just go kind of randomly here. Um, there's a few companies you may have heard of, like Giro, Oreo, New York Times, uh, Nike, Solomon, Patagonia, Pepsi, you may have heard of, Stussy, Target, <laughs> OK Go, Death Cab for Cutie. I mean, this is wild. Yeah, that's not even, I don't even update the list. I mean, that's just, that's a period list. And how did this go? I mean, it went together in sort of a linear way or things really shot up after her or like, what was the trajectory like here? No, I mean, it's been, it's just like a steady, I mean, I, you know, it's like one, like I started like some of my first big clients, it was like, it was like MTV led to like Nike stuff very early on. And so I was like, very quickly was like working for like you could say sort of big brands like doing projects like that just look you know that were like not only was I doing projects but it was like it was basically like my art but it would be for Burt or it'd be like my art but it'd be for Pepsi or my art and it would be for Nike so it was like not just like projects but I was getting in a way that like at times felt like a coup like that I was like getting to like do like it was really working that, that basically just like making art and then like applying it to projects was like a very, like a, like a really functional, like it was something actually that like, like these projects that were like appearing, like the projects kind of like the projects were there, but what they needed was actually some like autonomous person to just make art to like sort of fill that void. And I think like now that's like a model, you know, it's like almost like, it was like the dawn of that sort of like maybe like a design that leans towards content, you know, that it wasn't like this like anonymous, like, oh, this will be our campaign and it'll be really effective because it'll be flashy or, you know, like, it's like, no, like I'm going to actually make this look like somebody made it. Like I'm going to do something that's like, it actually triggers something in people like, oh, there's like a human being rather than like the, the opposite, like, of like design that is like anonymous, like a th authoritative, like like an authoritative catchy jingle that like is on the tip of your tongue. It said instead, it's like I'm creating like slightly flawed, very human work that says something. So like, and then the minute it says something, like it's speaking to you, like it's like saying something, like it's very, it's sort of risky, you know, because it's like, well, what are you going to say? But I was like, it's like, well, that someone had to have like a mind to think that thought and like to decide to like say it out loud. And I think like that, like very basic action is like, like sort of exactly what I like was the goal to do in all these projects, like to take a risk of actually saying something, which is like, you know, we, I mean, it sounds crazy, but it like that that would be like uh like that, it's that, that that was like unusual at the time, but it, 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 it sort of was. Um, and 
um, yeah, and I think it's like, you know, these, like, what that did is like, because the one thing that like companies, like even like Nike or like, you know, Nike's like run on design, but it doesn't really have that like, like a head on its shoulders. It's like this sort of like a collective of many individuals and many different ways of speaking and like worlds. And so like, like this sort of like a singular sort of like very human voice, like sort of would stand out in, in projects that I did for them. It, I mean, it actually is remarkable that like when you're talking with, when we're talking about some of the biggest brands in the world, that you were able to earn this level. I'm tempted to use the word trust, but they were like, yeah, let's get Jeff. Let's let's get his vision of things. And we're just going to imprint some very commercial, very kind of corporate objects with that very kind of singular vision. I mean, that that doesn't that's unusual. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but like in some ways, yes, but it was like it's not like I was like getting like sponsored. It was more like they were like I saw like and this is like like sort of the essence of like like business or something, you know? It's like it's like more like Yeti making coolers that are like how did like it's like we're like the you know like Yeti made five hundred dollar coolers like who knew people would pay five hundred dollars for a cooler, you know? And it's sort of like the cooler they didn't invent the cooler, you know? So like and that's very much like I feel like I walked into like a similar situation where like the world like we the world had marketing the world had design. And then they had like photographers, illustrators to like sort of like hire to like fill those voids. And like, I basically like stepped in and I called myself a designer, right? Like I say, like I'm a designer. So that means like I have total control. So like I step in and I, but then instead of like hiring somebody, I just do it. So like I step in and my design is like the voice of an illustrator. Like I'm sort of speaking like in narratives in a very personal way, right? And then I'm creating imagery like I'm making and I'm doing it with images. So I'm like making imagery. And like, so like, and then I'm putting it into the realm of like, I'm calling it design, but really it's marketing, right? So it is like, it's, yeah, it was sort of like, there was like a, I mean, I saw it as like a flaw, like there was like these, like these huge gaps, you know? And so like a culture like skateboarding, it didn't have like skateboarding was like of course like if it, if you're gonna make a graphic for a thing if you're gonna have like an ad in a in Thrasher, it should be about something right like it should have like someone should like scrawl our name and have a photo of a guy and maybe the guy's doing something useful like a trick or he's doing something funny or we're making fun of some other company you know you know you're immediately like like they're immediately like generating like all the stuff that you want from culture, right? But then in the broad culture, it's like, it like someone decided along the way that you don't do that. You don't go like, oh, we should scrawl our name and like have it be about something, you know? Um, so, you know what I mean? Like it was sort of like, I was applying, like not like I was applying like a skateboardy thing, but I think there's many cultures that are like, yeah, of course, like it should be about something, you know? <laughs> and I think that that is like to this day, like that's like, I think like my work like looks like something. Like I always, things look like things and, but like I'm always pushing like what, like what's within the work. And like no one's asking me to do it, but I'm like sort of like putting like myself in the work and like, um, 
yeah, like stretching, like the ability of like small things to like speak in big ways, you know? So we should go back to asking you a bit about skiing and or <laughs> telemarking. We, um, you, you've got your roots in skating. There needs to be a separate timeline, like for skiing. Like what is happening? Like when do shape skis appear? Like <laughs> the beat, like it's like, there's like snowboard times, skateboard, snowboard times. And then like I skied when I was a kid. And then I went into like snowboard times, like I, which I think this is like a common thing, right? Like you snowboard, like I snowboarded through, like I stopped skiing and snowboarded up until skis became fun again, which is like, like, like sort of like 1080 era skis became fun again. And you're like, oh my God. And like, you can carve without like making a pole plant. And um, so that's sort of like, yeah. So like that is about, I'm sort of, that was my ski timeline um, and sort of stopping snowboarding. Like I would still snowboard, but I just, I don't even own a snowboard anymore, but. Um, so how, how much do you get to ski these days? I mean, you're living in LA. <laughs> There's not have, a lot yeah. of snow right there in LA. I ski a lot though. I mean, I definitely, I mean, I take trips, like I'll take like a couple trips a winter like um like maybe one like sort of good trip like Japan or like Alaska or like BC or something and then I'll do like a, a trips with my family um with, to like Mammoth or Telluride um and then like and then we have some like local skiing so like I'll do like last winter I had like five days of backcountry skiing locally like real like real powder days where I'm like dropping off my kids at the bus, driving to the mountains, skiing and like being back in the studio by like two and like working. Yeah, really crazy. But that's like really rare. We had like a real crazy winter, but. How much, how much kind of inbound skiing are you doing versus backcountry skiing? Um, more inbounds. I mean, like I'll do like, if we go to Mammoth, like I'll do like maybe two days backcountry in Mammoth and like if we're there for a week and then five days in the resorts. And um, and then I'll do like a trip that is usually some sort of like, I went to Bald Face last with a group, um, which is amazing, like last winter. And so I'll do trips like that, which I don't know, do you count that as backcountry skiing? I, sure, sure. Yeah. I guess I think I of backcountry skiing as like packing a lunch and like, only like hardly any descending. That's my idea of backcountry skiing. But yeah, <laughs> both face counts. And so, how much time are you spending telemarking <laughs> as opposed to alpine skiing? So you've mentioned telemarking like three times. I have not responded. I haven't taken the bait. Um, you haven't. I. I mean, I. I spend all my time telemarking. I switched all. to. Te- yeah. I mean, I decided I was going to learn to telemark. Um, classically, when my I was teaching my my oldest daughter to ski and she's 16 now. So I taught her to ski when she was three and I decided I'm gonna learn to telemark, which I had a friend who telemarked. Like when we would snowboard, I had my friend Noel, who was a ripping telemarker and we would snowboard and he would telemark. So I was exposed to telemarking like whenever that was, like in the late eighties, early nineties. 
And I always, and I decided like, man, I, I'm going to learn the impossible thing. Like it felt like I'm going to learn to play the violin. Um, but uh, <laughs> I luckily, like I chose to start telemarketing when telemarketing got a lot easier. So it's like plastic boots and um, black diamond bindings that were like really responsive. And But yeah, I always planned to like go back and forth. And then I just, I always wanted to telemark. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of crazy. And so I still will alpine ski, but like I always bring, I always bring a lot of gear. Like I'll bring alpine gear, but I just don't use it. Or, I mean, I sort of stopped bringing alpine gear, but. Okay. Well, this is 100% on trend with our last podcast where we were doing predictions for the next 10 years. And, you know, Sam Shaheen, God bless him, and and Paul Forward, we're we're all predicting the rise of telly. And um, by the way, this text, this text from you I got after you listened to that last podcast, um, the quote is, uh, so much telemark content in 2020 predictions. Love it. Sam is my guy. Most telemark talk done in a podcast since 2008. <laughs> it, it was crazy. I was like, this can't be happening. Uh, How Like, I appreciate it though. No, I was going to say like, um, I'm going to do, can Sam interview me actually for my podcast? No. No, nope. Sorry, Sam. The local Um, telemark expert. He had a lot of good points, though. I mean, I'm joking, but it was it was it's kind of true. I mean, and I like if I if I was in on the panel, I would have chimed in like so as like a telemarker. And I am like serious. Like I'm not just like like I I take telemarking serious. Like I like it's something I've learned like over a decade. And but like as you telemark around. like people ask about like people ask about it like so i'm in the shop and i'm buying telemark stuff and like there's a girl there and she's the um she's like a a coach on the ski team and she's buying telemark gear and like people are i don't know i mean it's a very strange niche thing that sort of um yeah it's indefensible in some ways but i mean i think i i mean i do like for me it's like Telemark was, I mean, it was like a challenge at first. It became like, I want to like learn to do this thing. And then it becomes like, well, like, what do you sort of like want? Like, I also, you know, I started a skateboard company like a while ago called the Solitary Arts and I folded it, but it was like something like, so the Solitary Arts was based on like our understanding of skateboarding. So it was like, it was based on like, if you change the type of board you ride, like if you ride a board with no tail, like you can't ollie and like what does that do to your day and like like this idea of like based on for me like i also surf so it's like based on like the the quiver of like the quiver concept in surfing right so like in surfing you have different boards for different waves different boards for different ways of surfing and in skateboarding it was like there was i saw we saw it like i started with this another guy and it was like this idea of like well with different boards you will like approach things differently. So we made these very small boards and boards with no tail, boards with long wheelbases and wheels that were small but soft. And, you know, it was like, and for me, it was like, I spent like a year only riding weird skateboards as well. Like as a way of like, you know, when you do something for like decades, like sometimes it's like, it's really refreshing to like learn. And that's something I like coming to surfing. Like I started surfing when I was like in my, 
like late 20s. So it was like sort of like learning something as an adult. And like that was like super inspiring. And you become like sort of hooked. Like for me, it was like I became sort of like hooked on learning. And um, so I want, so I sort of took from surfing and I applied it to skateboarding. And then applying what I sort of, the similar thing I was sort of like by telemarketing was applying it to skiing. So it was like, you sort of go like, well, what do you want from skiing? Like, can you just turn? Like, so telemarketing was like, oh, can I just like wake up? You know, I also had like all these years of sort of bad habits in alpine skiing that like telemarketing like completely like doesn't care about. Like, it's like, it just wants you to be centered. It wants you to be super conscious and like, you have to like every turn can be different. You're like micro adjusting. You're doing all this stuff that was like, so in that way, it was like really, there's like a lot of reasons that like telemarketing, I think is like really good. Like it made me a way better Alpine skier for sure. Like when I go back to Alpine, I'm like a completely different skier. Um, but also like, it's just that sort of like, what do you want? Like, what do you want from skiing? You know, like I sort of like, like snowboarding, I never really could do I could never spin, you know? And I think that's something like now, like people I know who snowboard, they're on like directional boards, you know? Like, so snowboarding is sort of like addressing this idea of like wide stance. Like when I stopped snowboarding, my, you know, there was this very wide stance, sort of like spinning oriented um, thing that was happening. And in skiing, I think there's this thing, there's like sort of like skiing fast. Like definitely I can't ski as fast on telemark but i i but i'm also not one of those telemarkers who like just like noodles around on greens like i want to ski i ski the whole mountain and like I, I ski um like not like i can't straight line crud you know but it's like it you know but there is like it is like a it's like more considered or something and i'm telling you between <laughs> the last podcast and this one we just <laughs> just dumping gasoline on the, the mean, telemark fire and like let's let's be honest you've basically been on trend your entire life it's true so but start i'm buy, i'm buying all the telemark stock that sam shaheen has not already bought up i think this is our next uh yeah this this just seals the deal um we're all only going to be telling in like five years it's true i mean it's it's uh yeah, I mean, it's definitely comes cheap. Yeah, it's like <laughs> dusty, really dusty. The stocks are like, they're like crusty. Like, uh, yeah, they're just like, um, it's like someone like just hand writes a note, like you have a 25% share in the future of telemarketing. It's like a, <laughs> a dirty like receipt for a breakfast burrito and there that's a stock in telemarketing. Yeah. <laughs> so now I want to ask you about skate culture, versus snowboard culture versus ski culture. If you these days like find yourself even thinking about these things or if you still have a kind of curiosity and kind of have an eye on each of these different, if it's a, if we're not wrong in kind of calling these each kind of having their own culture or subculture. Um, and I can either leave it at that broad question or we could go a bit more specific in talking about sort of their, each of those respective subcultures and their relation to kind of art and design in general. Mm -hmm. Is this stuff you think about or look at? I mean, I definitely, 
I mean, I, I sort of like, I make stuff in those worlds and yeah. And I pay attention and like, I'm a consumer and I like all those things and I watch the stuff. And, um, I, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm interested because I think I'm like, maybe, I don't think I'm rare. I think there's a lot of people who do like have like a, like a, like sort of participate or have like an interest in all of those things and like other cultures, like, like I'm watching like fly fishing stuff and I'm paying attention to like, um, like alpinist things and like, but in a very ten like, you know, tangential way, but it's all sort of like related, like my central culture is skate culture. Like that's sort of what I grew up with. And that's like, sort of like, um, like, like sort of like the center of everything. Um, but like, you know, like a lot of my friends, like as we grew older, like people became involved in climbing or became more involved in skiing or like there was tons of overlap, like growing up in Calgary of like skiers that were like skating, skating and snowboarding, snowboarding, skiing. Like you were, it was all very like interconnected. Um, and then culture wise, I think like, I think it's, you know, I think people like, I think it's very, you know, it's like difficult, difficult to sort of like relate the things like relate skating to like other cultures or like you know like you look at skiing like skiing has like a you know like visually it's really strange and i think you know i think there's like i think there's like real there's like fundamental differences in like how like because these cultures are all they're also businesses in many ways like the stuff we're seeing like when we say culture where like and when we're talking about skateboarding, like we're talking about brands, we're talking about people's businesses and stuff that people are, you know, there's people sort of like selling you stuff. That's the culture, you know, it's not like, um, you were not talking about bands. We're not talking about, um, um, yeah, like, like fine art or something. So, um, you know, and I think in skiing, like there's this sort of, like, there's been this sort of, you know, there's, like there's these huge sort of conglomerates that have like taken a hold of, I mean, K2 was independent for like the first 10 years of its life or something, you know? Um, and I think that, yeah, there's independent small brands coming up in skiing and, but there's, um, you know, like you sort of look at it and it's like, oh, but how much of that is controlled by like the wholesale market and distribution and like the expense of manufacturing. And, you know, I, so I think you can't like in that way, like from like a design perspective, like I look at like skiing sort of like, or snowboarding to some degree, like it's sort of like has a different pace and it's like a different environment as opposed to skateboarding, which has always been sort of, it's like always like reinventing itself on these like very like small, with these sort of like small, like, like, like on in very like microscopic ways that have huge um, like sort of dividends, you know, like people can start weird brands and like, close things and restart things and things are rider owned like you know skateboarding has been rider owned for decades you know um like the magazines are owned by skateboarders you know like so like the like the media the companies the people making the films the people shooting the photos they're all skaters making stuff for skateboarding um and i think like in skiing or you know it's like you don't it's 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 a little bit different like you like you wonder like in the ski industry are there like people in the ski industry who like don't ski yeah you know (laughs) that's kind of you know like that's crazy and um so like i think like in that way so like where like in ski culture you know and also ski like you know skiing like to go skiing is like it's up in the mountains and like the people who are 
who are like the real like the core like the core of like the ski world are also like it's like by nature you're sort of isolated and um like the core the core should be running things but you know maybe that is not the necessarily the case but yeah and then it's like i think you know you'll have you know i think in i don't know what else like snowboarding i mean snowboarding i i sort of like stopped having like an involvement in it like very very early on just because you decided to jump over to these new fun skis after skiing <laughs> stole all the good ideas from snowboard design exactly like basically like skiing yeah exactly skiing became fun because he stole like the turn 100%. everything from snowboarding yep and it's like oh we, we can we'll do tricks we wait we can alley-oop we can um you know like we can grab and we can do those turns we can try and we have like this goal Exactly. No, it's crazy. And, um, but like, I didn't, I didn't all, like, I didn't really have any connections. Like, to, like, I'm sort of like, I stopped doing, like, I started like working and snowboarding. I did like, I did stuff for Burton and, um, and then I did the Salmon Six Stick for a number of years, um, when they launched it. And, but yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, skiing got good because of like, that's the goal. Like when I ski with snowboarders, I'm just trying to do a snowboard turn. Like that's everything. <laughs> and like telemarking is very much out of like, oh, that's the closest I can get to a snowboard hmm. turn. You know, like I can hand drag and you know, the, you can really do like, it's sort of like the closest you can get to that, that sort of turn um, for me. But yeah, I think, I mean, I think it is, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm super interested in like how people, like I, I just like culture, you know, like I like, I, like it doesn't have to be like good even like I just think it's like I think like it's interesting to look at like mountain culture and like things that like happen within it and these sort of like micro cosmic little connections and um, like people like like uh, yeah I mean I think that like there's like it's like I don't know I guess because it's like I'm not into like team sports like I don't follow like baseball or anything so for me, it's like mountain sports, like, and like the culture, like mountain culture is, is like maybe similar. Like I, like I read about, um, like mountain culture. I think we, like we talked about, um, Jack Turner and, uh, his books. And I think of like someone like him, like, um, like in his book, Tiwanot, like there's a page in it where he just lists all the people. He just, it's like one page where he's talking about the mountain Tiwanak, which is in the Teton range and, and all the people and all the descents and all the skiers that did those descents and like who they were. And like, it was, he was a realtor and he was a ripping skier and he was scoping this line for like a decade. And then he finally had a day and it's just a page of like 30 people. And like, when I see that, I'm like, I want to read about every one of these people, you know? In a way that I think people maybe like, if you were like really into baseball, you'd be like, "Oh, the pitcher for whatever," and he went and played for this team. And but I think in the mountains, it's like people are doing things, and in these cultures, like in skateboarding, and surfing, and skiing, like people are doing things like basically for themselves. Like yeah, there's like GoPro footage, and people will write like a self-published biography, and they'll mention something. But these things are just like happening, and that 
I mean, I feel like that's the kind of culture I love, you know, and like skiing and, and these cultures are like full of it, you know, and those sort of connections of people doing stuff that I think of as like real, real stuff, you know? Yeah. One of the things I love, and you said this real early, is like this talk about working both in high culture or high brow culture and low culture or low brow culture. And I realize like that's just something that I personally just love. That was really important to me actually when thinking about blister at its roots. Part of my background is like I was at the University of Chicago and I was a philosophy professor and I was giving academic papers in the UK. And in a way, doing this work in what was like one form, while academic philosophy writing is absolutely shitty writing and it's a terrible genre, it is in certain circles considered like super highbrow, right? And I always thought like, why can't we elevate? Like when it would come to a writing genre, I was like, the genre of the gear review is probably the lowest form of writing ever, like that's ever been created. Like it's just cliche riddled form of writing. And that was literally baked into my thinking about Blister at the start was what if we elevated what is what might be the lowest genre of writing? And like the way to do that is not to turn the gear review into some academic treatise because that's not what it is. It's for a bunch of people who just love shredding down a mountain. Yes, absolutely. No, yeah. And I, but I recognize that in Blister from the start. It's like, oh, good writing and taking it seriously. And then you did a podcast very early on. I'm not sure what it was, but there was a, it was like a super deep one. And you kind of got into, you went over, you got into some of your background in philosophy. And, and I like, that's like, just lights me up. You know, like, I love that, that, I mean, what is that? What are we talking about? Like, high, like, cause I'm, you, you know, I'm sort of saying high and low in quotation marks, you know? Yeah. But it is places where it's like, you can go places where there, there is like, you can say there's like no culture, right? Like out in the wilderness, right? So what's better than like going out, you know, like for me, like I was in my trailer in Alaska, like waiting for the weather to clear so we could fly, but I was drawing. And for me, it was like, I was doing, I did like a whole project that was for the New York Times that was like, so it was like, I did a project, you know, in, you know, in Alaska that I took iPhone photos and was published the next day in the New York Times, like, and I did it from like a parking lot, you know, in, you know, and I think it's like, I don't know, that stuff's magic. And I think like in, with, with Blister, it's like, yeah, like, it's like sort of like an open door to, yeah, I mean, Blister's like, it's a, it's writing, you know? It's writing, a lot of writing. So this is what, and I, I think maybe that's one of the things that we just both appreciate is that that ability to move between these worlds and, and really truly appreciate them. Not There's not a condescension, right? It's like you are operating and living sometimes at the sort of the highest form of culture. And like, that can be great. And then when you, you don't like, you know, hold your nose and then walk, walk down some flights of stairs to slum it 
in the world of skate culture or ski culture. It's like you love that world just as much or more. Yeah, I, I presume yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm putting yeah, yeah, words in your yeah. mouth here. And I take it. Yeah. And it's like sort of like you hold it in this like very high regard, you yeah. know? And maybe that's also because it's like, for me, it's like, I like, cause I am an outsider to, to like real mountain culture or, you know, like I am, you know, I live in Los Angeles. Like I grew up in Canada, but like, it's very much like, for me, it's like, I feel like I'm removed from it, you know? So you do maybe hold it. Yeah. You hold it. Like it's this sort of like special thing. Um, but like, yeah, I think it's like, yeah, for you to leave like, this sort of like, like you saw that, that world of academia and it's like, you take, I think it's like this understanding of like, that, like that stuff, it's like everywhere. Like you take your, your, your past with you and you like bring it to what you're doing or something. Um, like I was thinking about, like, I, like, you know, I was, I was, I was talking about like Jack Turner, who was a philosophy professor and then went on to be a mountain guide. And then it's like, I also thought of like Andrew McLean. You know, like, I don't know much about Andrew McLean besides, you know, the book and the Ski Descents book and and that he designed the Whippet and, like, he designed a bunch of, like, like as a designer for Black Diamond, he designed a bunch of those, like, really intense, like, engineer, intensely engineered, like, climbing tools. And then, but then, like, quit to ski more. <laughs> you know, it's, like, kind of, like, that type of stuff, like, blows my mind you know like it's like yeah I don't know like those I feel like that I like maybe I should be going to museums more but I feel like my influences like come from like things like that you know like they come from this like other place that feels like I don't know like it's like I get I think it's like everybody like everybody has things that like reach them and so for me it's like mountain culture or like like I guess I don't even know what it is it's like this sort of like to me it's like this like yeah, what is it like like real culture <laughs> it's like uh like people doing stuff or something like it just reaches me like somehow I like feel like knowing nothing about Andrew McLean like that just to hear that he made that decision like I wanted to ski more like I was at the top of my game I was like like obviously like a super talented industrial designer but I want to ski more and like, you know, but seriously, like doing descent, like planning trips and like, not just like skiing for fun or whatever. Um, I mean, I don't know much about him, but um, you know, it's sort of uh, like that stuff, like it, it reaches me, you know? And so I guess it's like you, you seek out stuff, like what do you seek out that is gonna be like the powerful stuff in your life, you know? So like, I'm, I feel like I'm definitely like seeking that stuff out. This is a bit of a piggyback question on what you've just said, because you actually just were talking about some of your, like, influences. And I don't really want to so much ask you about, this is not a follow-up question about influences. This is a question about, like, just personal interest. So you've actually said, in terms of influence, you're influenced by people who are out there doing things and making things, right? And that kind of energizes you. Yeah. I am curious, though, if we look at other forms of art, not what are you kind of most influenced by these days, but just kind of personally most interested in, if we threw out the different genres or mediums of like film or music or novels or painting or sculpture. Yeah. 
you know, I'm I'm pretty omnivorous, you know. Um, I definitely like I'm listening to music all the time, and like lately, I've been listening to like like really sort of strange, like very sort of like minimal music, and I feel like it's like I'm so. I'm like I feel like there's an efficiency to like what like I see and what like I take in, you know, that is like I don't take in a ton of culture, you know? Like I don't I'm not like like I I think it's like living in Los Angeles like the danger is like overexposure to like humanity. I'm a little surprised. Like I would say for me personally, I like my Spotify, I think my credit card expired or something. And then one day, like a year and a half ago, I didn't have a Spotify account anymore. Oh and I was like too busy to like fire it back up. And so I just realized like for a year, I was just listening to podcasts. Oh my God. My music consumption went way down. And so, you know, I think that I, that's what I think I was curious about. Like, and then I was like, oh my God, like I haven't been listening to music and I've, you know, remedied that just in the last month or so. And, and so I'm always just kind of curious. Right. And it's like, so that's a very different thing. And I'm just, I'm right now really acutely aware of the fact that I just started taking in a lot less music in my life mm. than really I have in decades. Oh, wow. But I think you go through phases, you know? Like I think, like at home, like I did a thing last year where like I only listened to vinyl, which sounds sort of conceited, but it's like- <laughs> Hipster. But like I sort of like went, like it was like partially to like buy new records that like I just listened to in a way that's like super, like unlike streaming at my studio. So I'm like streaming music at my studio like the entire time. So if you think of how much music I'm consuming at my studio, and then so then it's like at home, it's like I listen to music that won't like annoy my family and like on records that you have to like flip and you sit there and like read a book and listen to a record and like go through records like in my collection that are like, I haven't listened to this record in 10 years, you know, which is pretty easy to do. Um, but I think that's like, I think it's like this, our under, like our use of music or something like, yeah, I think it's like, yeah, we're, I think it's easy to like either overconsume or like sort of like get tired of. Like it's hard to find that sort of balance, you know? I like, I guess it's like I like to listen to new music. I don't really like li listening to familiar music. I like to listen to things that are new, but I want to like it. <laughs> it's nice I want to like, like it, it, but it has to be new. So, Give me, I'll, I'll broaden this out, but you got to give me one either album or musician that what just comes to mind that caught you recently where you're like, man, I'm into this. Well, I mean, I think it's like a record that I think that I've, I think like the one of the greatest records of all time is Keith Jarrett, the Cologne, Cologne concert. Cologne, Germany. So it's uh, Keith Jarrett, a jazz pianist, sort of like a very minimal jazz pianist. And it's like kind of one of the greatest records of all time. So I wouldn't say that's like a recent thing, but like 
it just came to mind, like, if someone asked me, like, what do you think is, like, the greatest record that you own? And I could have an answer for it. It's really strange for me. Because I'm very much like, I don't know, kind of guy. Um, it's very chill. I think it's, and it's streamable. Um, but as a record, it's like, you know, it's like a four, it's like a double record, a double double album. Like, so it's like this long, live, improvised solo piano concert. If that comes to mind, like what that's going to be like. I'm going to check it don't, out. Don't throw it on at the party. I won't throw it on at the party. <laughs> I will check it out. Though. I heard this is the jam. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, not new. Um, I'm going to push you, even though I said I wouldn't and I'd only ask one. <laughs> film. Last film you saw that just kind of knocked you back. I mean, the new Tarantino movie. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Um, and then I'm doing like film class with my daughter, who's 16, who like up to this point, like would like Francis is her name, Francis McFetridge. And she would not watch films. And then she just suddenly had an epiphany, like I'm into film. But we're starting with like, like basically like the dawn of film, like talkies sort of like not silent, but like, and the and then we only watch movies that neither of us have seen. And man, we just watched All About Eve. But it's pretty great to go back to, to that era. Like, like I've never seen the Maltese Falcon. Like we watched the Maltese Falcon. I'd never seen it, you know? Um, Where are you at on Wes Anderson? I love Wes Anderson. Okay. I'm with you, man. That's just a litmus test. Oh yeah. If you if Absolutely. you said like if you were like, I'm not really that in, I would be like, this conversation is over and I'm and I'm burning this tape. But like I'm strangely like I also like me and my wife both like have like a fixation on the Darjeeling Limited. Oh no. Like that which yeah. That's like out like out of nowhere. The sort of like a mess movie that is like like it feels like him having like a breakdown or something in a way that I find sort of like amazing. And that soundtrack and it's it's a kind of incredible movie. Very like heavy and I love that movie. You know that's my like least favorite of that's his That's why films. I'm bringing it up. I know that. I I've, know. I've heard oh, this discussion. Man. I've heard you record it on, <laughs> let's bring up the tape. Um, <laughs> well, now yeah. I feel like I definitely missed something. So yeah, now you did. you're going to make me, okay, I got to go back and watch Because like one. if, be just because he's like a genius of like, um, like sort of like creating perfection and like these like, beautiful, symmetrical, articulate little jewel box moments. Like you have that movie, which is like loose and like um, more atmospheric sort of. I'm down for atmosphere. And that it's, it, 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 it's like strings along. It's sort of like, I figure like it feels like an emotional gap in like stuff that's maybe not in, in his other films. All right, I promise I'll go back and and do a rewatch and just list, listen to it. It's so crazy. It it definitely like the the beginning of it rocks out and then you start to be like, "Whoa." Huh. But that is a good litmus test with people in general. I think that's a decent one. You could hang up on me if I was like, "Uh-uh." <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that's good to know. Um this is really fun. I'm enjoying this part of the conversation a lot. Uh books real quick. Are you 
a novel guy or a nonfiction guy? Like, like both on the nightstand, like back to back, like on top of each other. I like like to read like three books. You know, it's like mood. I'll have like the book I like to read at lunch, the book I read before going to bed, the and then like the book I sit in my chair and like listen to minimal piano music. <laughs> but like you know, you have different. I like to go back and back back and forth. I have a lot of books going. The the worst thing about Blister is that it's really tanked how much reading of actual books I do. I've heard you um, say that too, which is like totally not okay. It's not okay. I I have it's it's really been a saving grace and it kind of started in the like this past year that I finally just started getting authors on the podcast so that I would have to read their stuff. Oh yeah. Right? And and so yeah. then it was and so it's a cheap way you know, and, and it's, and it really did. I mean, it, it worked. Like it forced me to read some excellent things. I know like the, uh, like the, on the Kindle, it'll tell you like, this book will take you five hours to read. It's like, how come it's going to take me like a month to read this thing? <laughs> yeah. Like Terry Gross. I don't know how she does it. How does Terry mm. Gross? I don't, I don't trust fast readers. I'm sorry. They're all liars. It's true. Like, they're, they're skimming. Yep. They're skimmers. You're not a reader. Yeah. yeah so they, they don't count. Okay, well, you dodged, you didn't give a specific author or title, but... Well, I would, I mean, I would say, I mean, I think for your listeners, I think that that Jack Turner, The Abstract Wild, is like an amazing book. I love Craig Childs. Um, like, so I'm like this, like for the Blister listener, I think there, there should be a Blister, there should be a Blister book list. Well, we do, you know, we did have early on the Blister book club. Oh, I'd and be we, down. Right? I mean, yeah. we need to fire this back up, basically. I mean, there's so much. I mean, like, because, like, I obviously don't just read outdoorsy books, but there's a huge world of outdoorsy books that are so, like, you can learn a lot. Like, they're, like, sort of essential, you know? All right, this is it. New Year's resolution, because of what you've just said, resolved. We are firing <laughs> up again the Blister Book Club. And so do you want... We'll go, we'll let you launch it. And so is okay. your is your selection, do you want some time to think about this or do you want to go with Jack Turner? Jack Turner, Abstract Wild, number one. And then and then if I get two, it would be um, Craig Child's Finders Keepers, which is, so those are both of the similar nonfiction sort of. But Craig Childs is a, he's a writer. He's, he lived in Telluride for a long time. He's sort of in the Four Corners era. An amazing writer of like the outdoors in, in a similar, like very philosophical and um, writes a lot about um, like sort of uh, like uh, he writes about like ancient culture. So he writes about like, like Anasazi, um, culture and like how it relates so finders keepers is about um the pillaging of of uh of uh like sacred sites and people like treasure hunters in the southwest and the complexity of of those like sites and it's super interesting and it's like in your backyard it's your world yeah yeah okay done i'm committed thank you for helping push me back into the world of reading actual books. This is yeah. what I need. It's, you need uh, some balance. All I this know. like talking about rocker. 
He's like, read a book. <laughs> it's not all rocker, man. It's not all rocker and early rise. It's not all rocker and early rise. It's true. Um, we're going back into the graphic design world of yours. Working with outdoor brands versus working with some like really big non-outdoor brands, I don't know, along the likes of a Google, Apple, you know, I don't know if it's fair to call Nike a non-outdoor brand. I don't know where we want to put them, but like if we're thinking about the kind of Patagonias of the world on the right. outdoor side, do you find any interesting differences when you're going, you know, I'm definitely making, I don't know if I'm making a false bifurcation here, but I'm just curious if I'm um, working with some of those companies in those different spaces feels different, goes different. Well, I mean, I think I always think I'm in like an enviable position that like I get to like move between all these different companies. And I'm a super curious person, so I like to see how companies run. I like to see how like products are generated, ideas are generated, like how people sort of like run their culture. So I'm like super sensitive to it. So like when I like take on a project and I work with people, like I'm like, you know, I'm feeling out like what is going on and like how, like what is up with the culture? And like, I'm looking to be inspired, you know, I'm like looking for like, oh, I like the way this company does it or, you know, um, it's not like critical. Um, but like, I think there is a general, you know, like there is like, there is like, um, like, like the way, like there's a general sort of like when people like approach me for projects, like I don't ever approach companies, like they're usually approaching me. So things, there's a sort of like general, that sort of like is like leveling the field. Like everyone's sort of approaching me already with like a project in mind or something specific. So I'm like working with a team that already is like reaching out to me. Um, I mean, the biggest, you know, definitely Patagonia. Like when I started my relationship with Patagonia, it was like, the whole goal was like to work with a company that was like run completely different than any company I'd ever worked for. Um, other than that, like most of the companies are, you know, they're very similar. And like definitely some companies are like impressive, you know, like they're super effective or, you know, working with Nike, they have like ways of basically like, like hiding the, the like massive infrastructure, like sort of hiding the structure below the project and make you feel like you're just dealing with one person. And, um, and then Patagonia is like, like the most interesting because it's like dealing with a company that's like, they're not interested, like they were basically not interested in so much of what like I was sort of offering. Like, they're just like, well, we don't want to sell more of that. We don't want to make more of that. We want to, you know, they were very much like, we, we're not trying to make something <laughs> like cool, you know, like, or um, like I had to sort of like, I had to like a lot to like sort of like learn from them and like figure out ways to like make things happen within like, um, like their sort of goals, which was like everything was like what kind of comes back to like, what does this do for the environment? Like, what does this do for like, uh, like our relationship with like consumption or um, yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of like their primary goal, which is to like make less stuff, um, which is super like that's like completely upside down from everybody I was dealing with up to that point. Um, and I think like the goal was like, okay, so I'm going to, so like when I started working with Patagonia, like I wanted to work with 
with Patagonia because I just thought they were the best brand. But then like in retrospect, it's like, oh, like for me, it was like going to school. Cause like what I learned from Patagonia is like, then I can take and like apply to like all these other brands that I have contact with, you know? And there's like, you know, it's like with limited, you know, like it's limited what I can do, but um, it's definitely was like a huge learning experience. Today, are you currently working on more sort of commercial design stuff or are you working on more kind of, for lack of a better term, like fine art stuff or do you still have a a pretty equal mix? I mean, it's an equal mix, but like literally today, like I was just painting, like I've been painting all this week. I'll be painting all next week. Um, I'm doing a bunch of stuff for Pharrell. So I'm like doing like next week I have to deliver some Pharrell oriented brand stuff. So like, it's like, it's like, yeah, I'm doing like design stuff, but it's like, it's like, (laughs) you know, it's like barely, it's like design stuff, but it's like very like sort of art based. I mean, the, the stuff for Pharrell is, is design, but, um, and then I'm doing, and then next, like. Yeah. I mean, it's always, yeah, it's always a, it's like back and forth, you know, it's like, like I'm one person. So like, yeah, it's like, it's like, I don't have like a a steady, like somebody like steadily doing like, I have an assistant who's like maintaining like communications and sort of like planning, like sort of like, he's like, um, yeah, he's like managing the studio, like how the work flows, but like, I have to do all the work. So it's like, I'll like, clean like like wash my hands and like sit at the computer and like do like computer stuff so it's it's 50 50 (laughs) do you have any kind of dream projects out there where i mean you frankly sounds like you use the word enviable and i uh, yeah i was like yeah i would say you're in an enviable position except you've worked really hard for a whole bunch of years to get to this position. It's not like you just luck, you know, you didn't like win a lotto. Right. And this just, you know, I guess I'm just curious if you're like, man, this would be the kind of either show or animation work or film work or commercial work that would just be super cool in your own, you know, in your own mind. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely like amazed like when I get to like work with Rick Rubin, right? Yeah. Like I wouldn't That's have crazy. thought, I wouldn't have thought I'd get to work with Rick Rubin. Like I wouldn't have like, like if you asked me that question, I'd be like, I one day would want to work for Rick Rubin, but having like, like working with him, it's like, well, I should have <laughs> said that because it's awesome to get to work with Rick Rubin or Pharrell, you know, like I don't like, like it's like, That's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Like to work with these people who are so like, they're like, like it's sort of like when we were talking about the Beastie Boys, like you were having this like like people who are like moving the culture around them, like they're play doing culture, you know, in a way that like is inconceivable, right? And like, but like for me, like doing project for these people, it's like very like, you know, it's like um, it's very uh, like uh, down to earth, you know, like the projects sort of come out of 
like connections with like work I've done or something they've seen or, you know, it happens in a very organic way, right? Like I don't have any agents. I don't have like a manager. I don't have a lawyer or, a, you know what I mean? Like it's all just like, if you're like working for friends, like it's not much different than when I started working. Like it feels like people that are coming out of my world and like they need something done. And like part of like when I say like I'm like I'm in an enviable position, I think like part of the enviable position is like an opportunity to like take on like challenges. Like both those projects are like come with like there's like the like a challenge, you know, like there's parts of it where I'm like, oh, man, this is really hard. But it's sort of like, oh, how lucky to be given those challenges, right? Like that is like a gift to be like put in a position like to be challenged. And because that's like an opportunity to like deliver something or to grow like because like, you know, it's like you want to do work that like makes you like a better person, you know, and I think that that is like the universal goal. Like I want to like learn. I want to like challenge my own assumptions about what I make or why, you know, and so it's like taking on projects. Like the reason I don't just like just do the fine artwork is like through doing projects for people is like how I meet people, how I like interact and I take on these challenges. They're, they're truly challenges. Like I do, like I can, you know, I can fail at all of these and I'll reach points where like, you know, like where it gets bumpy or like, I, you know, it's hard. And I think that that is like, that's part of like that opportunity. You know, that's an opportunity that I feel that's part of the, you know, en the enviableness of my position, you know, um, like totally sincerely. And I think that, so it's like, when you say like dream projects, it's like, I don't know. Like, I'm, you know, it's like, what is the dream project? Is it like, a, like, you know, I definitely don't take on like huge, like if you notice, like I don't take on huge scale projects, like projects that are like, oh, I worked on this film for two years. And, you know, I think it's like, that's something that like, I don't, like that is, you know, I think that's like, maybe that's a blind spot. Like maybe that's like, oh, I never took on like a grand work that like sort of takes all my skills and like, create something that like truly like is like sort of like like you know like maybe something that like oh that guy made that like I'm like a uh like I do lots of like small things like in small scale and I think that part of that is like like I do like I have like I feel like I have a lot of stuff I want to do and like I don't want to be I don't want to be tied down like I like a certain amount of freedom I like the ability to like change my mind and like change things up and like and you know I'm sort of selfish like I like to spend time with my family like I want to be able to like do trips and I want you know I spend a lot of time doing stuff that is just fun you know it's not you know I think in being able to make those decisions like to be able to go like next week I'm going on a trip for like a week like a ski trip and it's like the ability to do that like so like there are you know there are like I've made those um yeah I've I've built my world a little bit that way so like that's also why I've worked for so many people like I work on so many people and I've like moved in all these different worlds because I'm like I'm about like I focused on like nimbleness and like adaptability and like a like an ability to like I have like a central skill that I can apply to many different in many different worlds in effective ways. And a type of thinking that's like universal. And like I focused on like honing that like way of speaking um, through my work. 
and I think like for a purpose, like, and a part of that is like about like wanting autonomy and wanting variety and wanting um, like this sort of uh, that, like the freedom that like that, like building a studio in that way offers, you know, like I don't, yeah, I don't need like a staff or I don't need to spend like hours. <laughs> like I don't research anything like back to the other thing, like, cause I don't want to research. So I decided like, I don't do research. So I like built like a process of where I like look inward instead of outward. So it's like everything demands me looking inward. So it's like looking deeper, deeper, deeper inward to seek out like solutions to like like projects or art shows or anything that comes my way is all about like looking inward. And that's also like selfishness, like, cause I feel like looking inward, like all that time I spend, I'm not like destroying myself, right? Like I'm not destroying myself by making this work. I'm like, it's like theoretically, it's like sort of like good for me or like it's like that sort of process I can like take with me through life, you know, rather than um, creating like a, you know, a sort of like a process of work that is like destructive, you know, yeah, or or tax or taxing, which is you know a lot about, because like <laughs> you've created this like this project that's like super taxing on yourself, you know. Well, it, but it, the thing is, it's both, right? Like it is literally both exhausting and energizing yes and and because if it wasn't energizing i would have stopped a real long time ago and so i i i still i'm not smart enough to think about uh, to think about that but those are the two words that that very much come to mind It, it is it is exhausting and it is energizing and it's like equally so yes which so what it's just a weird equilibrium kind of thing it seems like at some point I'll have a more sophisticated take on it, but it seems like something like that. It's a, it is a massive output that, that, that demands a lot. And yet conversations exactly like this or an Instagram notification that comes three weeks ago, it, you know, from you uh, was just a wildly energizing and interesting thing. And, I think that I don't, I don't know a different way you've got, you've just described a little bit of a different way, but for me, it's like, there has been so much input here. And then there just are these really interesting things that come as a result. Yeah. That like spin out of it. Yeah. Yep. No, I think I, I talk about like it being like a, like making your own perpetual motion machine. And so like for every person, like you want, you don't want to rely on a client you don't want to rely on like this many subscribers and then we'll come out with the new issue like you want it to be like you do it like you want to do it anyway you do it and then you put it out and it doesn't matter what the response is you're still going to do it and you know and i think that like i see that in what you do and i think it's like for me it's like all like that was the goal like decades ago of like how can i keep doing this like i don't want to burn out you know like you don't want to burn out you don't want to feel like where's my, where am I going to find inspiration from? You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it should be a perpetual motion machine. It should be like, oh, it's just sort of like feeding itself in a positive way, not like in like a bubble, like myopic way. But I think there's ways that you can like create work and yeah, like for you, you're putting work out in the world, like, which is just healthy. You know, you're, you're writing words and putting it out there and you're getting responses and you're creating yeah you're you're building something like you are doing the thing like i don't do like the big project like a singular project that spans 
like like a huge part of your life and um i think that is yeah that's something that i'm you know like my whole thing is maybe the big project but it's like you know i think that like truly you are doing the thing that is like classically like you know when you read people like read people's like um like the story of people's life or something and it's like yeah they you know they say like it was really hard or it was this or it was that but it's like they're always glad they did it you know when you when you do like um yeah big projects or dedicate your life to something you know well i will just say i mean it's um this really has been an energizing thing and it really has been a pleasure to get to have conversations and get to enjoy your hilarious texts about uh, you will forever kind of, to me, be the kind of conflicted telemarker. <laughs> um, and uh, oh it's just, it's really been great. There's a question I've sometimes do like to ask people. And since you've listened to a number of the podcasts. What is the most interesting question <laughs> I have not asked you yet. Well, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> you got I know it. that question. Oh, I'll let you do it. I'll let you do it, sir. <laughs> no. I just got excited. I'm a fan, you know, so You you did it. You did it as better than I could have. So, let me let me we'll put you on the hot seat with that one. Um, what's the best question that I haven't asked you yet? Can you hear that? Can you hear me exhaling? I can, I can. Man, I, I, I should have been prepared for this question, right? Maybe the interesting question to me is like what, I don't know if it's a question, but like the reality is like everything that I've made, like everything I make, like you could sort of like look at everything I've ever made pretty much. Like this is a fast generalization, but I could probably do it because I can, I'm a good bullshitter, but I could probably look at anything I made and say that the re really what it's about is the creative process. So if you were to, so the question would be, what is, <laughs> what is your art about, right? What is it about? <laughs> you could have asked me like, what's it about? Like, what are you talking about? And what I do, like when I sit down to like make work, you know, like, so, you know, like it's never, you're rarely in like a perfect situation, right? Like it's like a noisy room. There's people around. You don't have enough time. You don't have, you're like, you're actually, you don't feel creative, right? So like, I sort of like learned the trick of like, I sit down and I just start doing something. So it'll be like drawing or writing things. And what I'm doing is getting all those bad ideas out of the way. So I'm like removing like, so all like the, like the things that I can't do, like all the bad novels, I'm like writing the bad novel. Like first you write the bad novel, right? Write the bad novel. And maybe you have two bad novels. And so you have to write two bad novels. So then you get them out of the way. So the entire time you're writing the bad novel, you're like, oh, this is great to get this done because the, then you can start writing the good one. And so much of like, so like basically everything that I make is like, I'm basically creating a portrait of like, like that the work is about like 
the like the sort of like the humanity that's in my work is about like facing that void. It's about like looking for ideas, looking like going into thinking and like expressing it with images. Um, and so I think like, it's like sort of a trick, right? Like if you make what you create about creative process, make it about like that sort of struggle, make it about the sort of like imperfection of your, of your situation or something. It's like, it's that thing of like, that's the perpetual motion machine, right? So it's like, we were talking earlier about like you, like if you had more time, you would like write or something. And I think that that's exactly like everybody's situation. Like great novelists, they didn't have time to write. You know, like people who wrote books, like they didn't have the time. Like if you read between the like the lines of people's biography, it's like, oh, this person didn't have time to write. You know, like Hemingway didn't really have a lot of time to write. Like, I mean, he didn't even, like he wrote every day or whatever, but it was like under stress and drunk and like trouble and like lawsuits and difficulty and politics and injury and whatever and loving to fish or whatever, you know, it's like, it's all under sort of duress. And um, I'll go back, like I'll go back in like sketchbooks and I'll like, I'm like, that's like all, like I'll go back, you know, I, I have these books that are like big thick books. Like I have a stack of them, like they're notebooks but like big notebooks and I have like, you know, I have a stack that's like two feet tall and they just go back in time. And each page is like a different project every day. Like I work in these big books and I can go back and I can see like things I'm working on like 10 years ago that I'm like, would be drawing today. Like, it's really crazy, you know? And I think it's like that sort of like, see, like that continuous project, which is maybe mental illness, but it's like <laughs> <laughs> functional sort of for me if we're gonna say that your life is the result of a mental illness i think that has been one very fortuitous mental illness i think this is a this has been a pretty good track you've been on yeah no i th I mean but i think it's like it is like a sort of like everyone has like your own like you work to your strengths right so it's like i have like i'm not good with like i have like a terrible like memory for like names and dates and times and you know but like i have a visual memory that's like i can like reach into a book from 10 years ago and like find the page where i drew a little thing and i remember it you know like it's a strange <laughs> <laughs> okay very last question because we just you know have been doing all this stuff about predictions do you want to leave us <laughs> with one prediction could, could be, you know, snow sports related, could just be anything related. Do you have any predictions to take us take us out with? I think, well, I mean, so like as like I can add myself to like the panelists, the snow sports panel. Sure. Oh, boy. How exciting. <laughs> I can chime in. Listener chime in. Um, yes. Comment section brought to life. Um, That's right. <laughs> Um, hmm. I definitely think, uh, I think that like uphill travel on the ski hill is a type of canary in the coal mine. Like I think of like, 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 okay, I tell Mark ski. Um, and 
I feel like it's the equivalent of like uphill in the resort. Like when you when you're uphilling in the resort, like people, everyone coming down says the same joke. Like, hey, you know, there's a lift, you know, and like it's the same when you tell a mark. It's like, you know, your bindings are broken, you know, which I think is like endearing, actually. Like, <laughs> like I don't I'm like the far from offended, like but people like comment, you know, and I think that that's that says something that's like where you go, like, what is going on? So like if people like when people like the breakdown of our like the facade of like resort skiing, like all the lifts and the energy and the waste and the expense. Right. And then they allow uphilling in the resort. Like where like where does that go? Like you sort of like if like it leads to like some sort of like basically like a jungle gym in the snow. Right. Like it's sort of like like you sort of like go far away from this like very controlled understanding of like, I did like 30 laps to the resort today. Like if we move into something that's way more about like, which, which I, you know, when I describe to people, if I'm teaching people to ski or trying to get people on the hill, I'm just like, just think of it as like tobogganing. Like that you're so lucky that you get to go and feel like, like the wind in your face and like be outside and be, go in the trees and like stop and like, you know, I'll bring like, like when I would ski with my kids, I would bring like a lunch and we would like ski into the trees and find a spot and like make lunch, you know, like in the resort. And I think like uphilling is like, oh, like not in like a schema way, but like in a touristy way, like in a classic way of, of like, I don't need to go fast. I don't need to ski bumps and like get air or something. Like, you know, like that skiing can be for like all sorts of people, like in a tobogganing, joyful way. And like, you wouldn't think like uphilling would say that. You'd think, oh, uphilling, it's like aerobic, like very outdoorsy, like ski touring, like people training, skimo people, you know. But um, I think that's sort of changing, you know, like I think that that. So anyway, my prediction, it's not like a prediction, but I think we it's like the thin ed edge of like a mystery wedge um that will that could be like i think it could be a real like a real change because like i think that the facade of of resort it's it's very odd you know huh so the so the prediction is we're going to see more uphill quote-unquote uphill skiers and uphill skiing that's your prediction yeah, and you're going to see people on, like, different types of gear. Like, what, like, if you're skiing, like, if you're only taking two runs down a day, how does that change what kind of gear you're on? You know, like, if you're basically snowshoeing. So what does that, say? like, you look at, like, leather boots, like, sort of wider fish scale leather boot skis, and they're really sort of appealing, you know? And, like, what, like, you sort of go, like, gear-wise, like, you could there could be a whole new, so like not super fast pin binding, not super burly shift binding, like what's in between, what is like, oh, like I wear all wool and I look like a human being. I look like a normal person in normal clothes. I don't look like a, a like a crazy astronaut. Uh-huh. And I'm like cruising around and having fun and not wearing a helmet. And you know, like you're doing, you know, like it's like way more human. You're like removing it, like, like becoming like way more like longboarding was to surfing, Yeah, you know, single fin surfing, 
surfing a fish instead of a thruster, you know, like, like riding small waves. It's not like everybody in skiing right now is sort of like getting barreled. Like it's like, you know, like, like powerful skiing fast. And I think that it has a, you know, it has a limit, you know? I anyway. like this. I yeah. like this a lot. That's my thesis. Um, now, my now, what I want to do is like come meet you somewhere in California or wherever, and we're gonna we're gonna have our like wool knickers on and like <laughs> wool sweaters and like a and like a picnic basket, like oh, a woven dude. picnic so basket. Classy, I mean, right? This is yeah, yes, exactly. And like glacier sunglasses <laughs> and a baseball hat. Yeah. And then we'll just hut cliffs. That's <laughs> I thought we weird. were just like... going to have like a nice picnic. I <laughs> no, didn't, I didn't know. I didn't think, I thought we were moving away from cliff no, fucking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, we will. Uh, it's is... going to be super sophisticated. Bringing it back to like the 1950s. So this, this, this would be a good, this, this is a good thing to envision as a future, you know, possibility. But, yes. Um, um, Jeff, thank you. Uh, thank you for the silent support that I didn't know about, again, to my embarrassment. Thank you even more for these recent conversations and for this recorded one. Um, even if some listeners aren't familiar with your name, there's like a 99.9% chance they've seen your work. And um, it's uh, it's really remarkable. We are just delighted to count you among the Blister community. And I just can't wait to keep seeing your output. Well, thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd encourage you to subscribe to the Blister Podcast, share this episode with your friends, and take 30 seconds to just leave us a nice rating in iTunes. That really helps the cause. I also want to say thanks to Jeff for the conversation. Thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Now, please take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.